The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to Mark 5 and read with me verses uh, 21 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. God, we're grateful to you for giving us your word, for speaking to your people, and for telling us who you are and what you have done. Pray that this story of Jesus' power and call would speak to our hearts by your spirit tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
As we come to this, this story in Mark, I think right off the bat, we notice something of the pace and the demand of Jesus' ministry. We get, we're working our way through, through Mark, and Mark is giving us this sort of action-packed story going from one episode to another. But, but here we get, we get a, a glimpse of Jesus, this, this helper, healer, savior, going through his day, meeting one person after another who desperately needs him. I think um, m- most of you probably know the feeling of going about your day and struggling to, to get everything done that, that comes before you. You're working on one thing and then another task interrupts you before you've even finished the first one and then your focus is turned off and, and it's, it's stressful, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's wearying, not only from all that you're doing but from shifting your focus and trying to keep track of what's going on. And here's, here's Jesus here. He has uh, crossed the sea, met a demon-possessed man, cast out the demon, been told to leave by the people of the land, crossed the sea again, shown up here, had a ruler of the synagogue come to him, beg him to come to his house. So he goes towards his house. But then a woman interrupts him, and, and she's desperate for healing. So he heals her. Then, the, then, then news comes that the girl's dead. But then he goes, you just get this, this sort of constant pace of the demands on Jesus of the ministry that he's, that he's going through. And as Jesus pours out his love and his power, as his love and his power are full, on full display in these stories, he spends his day calling, healing, saving, teaching one person who is in desperate need of him after another. I couldn't help but read this chapter without considering how frequently, how, how constantly Jesus was meeting the needs of people who came before him. But I think the emphasis of this passage is not so much on the demands that are put on Jesus. I think this passage highlights the situations of two people, two very different people who both come to Jesus in fear and despair and great need. And this passage highlights the response that Jesus calls to them. So let's look at each of the scenarios, the situations here. The first person we meet in this passage is Jairus. Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. He's, he's an important person in the community. He would have been well known by his contemporaries and, and most likely as one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus would not be a person that people would have considered to be someone who is in great need. Here's a, a ruler in the community. He probably is well provided for. He probably is rarely in need and if he is in need, he probably has the means and the connections to get help um, should, should he need it. And so it's probably uh, something uh, of, of an irony to have Jairus coming in desperate need before Jesus. Because here he is, this man who had much, um, was a ruler and a prestigious man in the community. Death and disease have come knocking on his door. His little girl, the pastor tells us his 12-year-old daughter, is sick. And not just sick, but sick at the point of death. Suddenly, all the things in life that could provide security and comfort to Jairus are useless. Doctors, perhaps, have been called. Different means have been tried. But here, his child is at the point of death. And I think any of you who are parents or have been parents know the feeling of seeing your child sick and know the the helpless feeling of, I would love to help you, I would do anything I could to help you, but you're suffering with this disease and there's nothing I could do. And here is Jairus. Here is Jairus who has tried everything and is sitting there watching his daughter die. 
Jairus, I think, is a strong reminder that no matter what we have or what we've accomplished, we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable to the consequences of sin and death. We're all going to be faced at some point with our desperate need of a Savior in the face of sin and death. As I think about Jairus and going through the passage here, we meet him right away, desperate and knowing his neediness. But I can only imagine the sort of uh, roller coaster of emotions that Jairus must have gone through as you trace the story. You think, here's Jairus, his daughter is on the point of death. He thinks, Jesus, Jesus is the one who might give me some hope. So he runs, and here is Jesus, having just arrived back on on this side of, of the lake. And he says, Jesus, will you come to my house? And Jesus immediately says, Yes, I'll come. And he could imagine the, glim- the, the glimmer of hope that's rekindled in his heart when Jesus agrees to come to his house. But, but then Jesus starts to make his way, and the crowds are so thick around them, the, th- uh, the, the passage emphasizes multiple times, thronging crowds are about him so that Jesus can barely make his way along uh, the, the road. And you could imagine Jairus sort of trying to, to hustle and jostle Jesus along as these crowds packed them in and prevented them from making normal progress. And I could imagine Jairus, you know, trying to elbow people out of the way, make way, you know, this is important. And the impatience and perhaps the desperation and anger of, of Jairus coming out as they, as they work their way through the crowds. And then if, if the crowd wasn't enough, here's Jairus looking behind him and, and Jesus has stopped. And now Jesus is paying attention to someone else. This woman has come up to the cra- uh, in the crowd and touched Jesus. And Jesus stops to question her and comment on her, her, her healing. And Jairus, what must Jairus be thinking all throughout this episode of, of healing this woman? Come on, Jesus. She was sick, but my daughter's dying. We've got a more pressing matter. Let's go. You know, I can imagine him having more worry, more pain, more, more anxiety, fear as the delay grows and it's taking longer and longer to get to his house. I, uh, I was thinking as I thought of this passage of uh, a friend uh, that my wife and I knew a number of years ago who, who told us about a, a Saturday morning that they had had. Um, the, the husband woke up one Saturday morning and, and wasn't feeling well. And as the morning went along, he started to feel worse and worse. And his stomach ache turned into a sharp pain in his stomach. And he said to his wife, you know, I really think I need to go to the ER. Would you please drive me to the ER? Now, the wife was a little skeptical that it was really as bad as he was saying it was. So she sort of took a little convincing before she got in the car. And when she finally got in the car, she's driving him to the hospital and and their daughter's in the back seat, and her daughter says she's hungry, and it's close to lunchtime. So the wife says, you know, I'm going to pull into McDonald's and get some lunch for our daughter. And he's like, no, get me to the hospital. And she's like, you're fine. Well, they get into the drive through line, and they're plodding through the McDonald's drive through line, slowly working their way through the pickup line. And you can only imagine, here he is writhing in the front seat of pain as they work their way through the drive through line. And, and of course, his appendix was right on the edge of bursting, and he was rushed immediately into surgery when they got to the hospital. But I picture that, that slow, plodding drive through line and the desperation that he was in when I hear the story of Jairus. We're moving at a snail's pace, and my daughter's on the point of death. Well, as Jairus waits for Jesus, it seems that the delay of healing this woman may have been quite costly because as Jesus finishes talking with the woman, messengers come from Jairus's house and say, uh, your daughter, your daughter is dead. And imagine 
the emotion that Jairus goes through from the glimmer of hope to the impatience and frustration to utter despair and grief, perhaps even anger, um, that, that this would have happened, that Jesus would have delayed when there was a hope of healing his daughter. And so despair and grief, perhaps anger, attack his heart. But Jesus responds then with the last words that Jairus could have expected. It's almost as if Jesus wanted this delay to happen so that he could emphasize the point that he wants to make to Jairus. Jesus says to him, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Meanwhile, we've mentioned her, but there was a second person that Jesus meets in this passage who's also in deep need. This woman, this woman who has been sick with a a flow of blood, a a hemorrhage for 12 years. Now for us, uh, a disease, a hemorrhage, a flow of blood would be uh, annoying, probably painful, Um, It would certainly uh, disrupt life. But for a Jewish woman, this disease was devastating because a constant flow of blood would make her ceremonially unclean perpetually. She could never uh, come out of her uncleanness according to the Mosaic law. And so here's a woman who is not only suffering from the pain of the disease, but she's also suffering from being excluded from the community. She would be unable to participate in feasts or worship. She would be unable to go through the rhythm of Jewish life. She would likely have been held on the edge of society because if you remember in the Old Testament, if someone comes in contact with her, they too could be made unclean. And so she's likely isolated. Uh, If she was married, the commentators that I read all agree, she's likely been either divorced or abandoned um, in in the marriage. And so this, this disease would have been crippling for her not only in pain, but also in its impact on her life. Because the, the impact of this disease was so severe, the Jewish Talmud actually goes through an extensive list of potential remedies for how to heal this disease um, in order to try to overcome the uncleanness. And so when it says that she had spent all she had, gone to doctors, tried everything, perhaps she worked through some of, of these remedies. Unfortunately, um, if you look at the list of remedies, I think you'll figure out pretty quickly why... Nothing has worked. Um, The remedies include things like have the woman stand at a crossroads where two roads meet, hold a cup of wine in her hand, and let someone come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from your flow of blood. I don't know if it was just a a, a hypothesis or if it had actually worked. Um, These are the types of things that the Talmud says that you should try. And so you could imagine this woman going through everything. Sure, I'll try even that. But she has spent all she had. She has gone to every remedy and has only been getting worse. And I think if you take the physical symptoms, you take also the, the social implications, but think also emotionally of what she's going through. You know how it is when you're faced with a difficulty or a hardship. When you start, you have hope that it's going to come to an end. But then as it continues to go and go and go, and maybe it looks like it's going to get a little better, but then it gets worse again. And after month after month and year after year, despair and depression and hopelessness set in as you wonder, is it even possible that I would ever be healed? And so here is this woman in her utter need, her desperate, desperate need. If we could say, what do both Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and this sick, unclean woman have in common? It is that they've both come to the realization that there is no hope for them. There is nothing on earth 
no skill, no expert, no money, no option, nothing that can help them in their position of desperate need. And it's in their realization that nothing can help them that they run to Jesus as the one hope that they have for healing. This is, this is exactly the position that we need to be in when we run to Jesus. Exactly the position we need to be. A recognition that we are in desperate need, vulnerable to all the suffering and death that comes with the curse of sin. A recognition that nothing on earth that we could run to, nothing that we could try, is going to bring the hope and the help that we want apart from Jesus Christ. And so a deliberate and desperate pursuit of Jesus, the Son of God, is our only option. That's the position these two come to. That's the position we need to be in as well. Because if you look around us, if you look around at at humanity and at our culture, you see the same story over and over again. First, a blindness to our desperate need, and then when we realize our need, a desperate chasing after so many solutions that don't end up working. I uh, noted um, just a few weeks ago, there's a singer, singer and songwriter Leonard Cohen passed away. And Leonard Cohen is known to have said the following. He said, I tried everything in life. Wine, women, song, money, career, drugs, art, every kind of extravagance, every kind of restraint. Everything helped in its way in that it said, this doesn't work. I think that's the greatest help you can get to find out that it doesn't work because nothing works. Nothing in this life was meant to work. A very insightful point. Anything we chase after will not work because it wasn't meant to work. You know, it's easy to recognize this in our culture when we see people in our culture around us chasing after different options. Maybe this will help. Maybe this will heal. Maybe this will make me more comfortable. Maybe this will give me something I'm hoping for. But I wonder, I wonder if we recognize this own pattern still in our own hearts. Because even as, as churchgoers who know of Christ, it is still uncomfortable for us to acknowledge our need, and it's still so easy for us to run to things on earth for help and for comfort. And just think, how many of us in the face of our sin, have blamed others rather than acknowledging the depth of our own sin? How many of us have told slight untruths or maybe full untruths and not acknowledged the truth in order to cover over our failures and ignore our desperate need? How many of us have felt that God is is actually pretty lucky to have us on his side? You know, yes, we have some minor flaws here and there, but us in desperate need, we think we're doing pretty well. How many of us when we've been hurt or discouraged, have turned to things to just distract ourselves from our pain. Perhaps it's TV, perhaps it's sports, perhaps it's something else that just distracts us from the thing we're going through. Maybe we've just turned and gone, gone for a day of shopping or had a little chocolate binge or something to make us feel better and try to cover things over. We're going to run there. There's so many options that we try to fill the hole in our soul with rather than acknowledging that our sin hurts, we are in desperate need in Christ, and Christ alone is what we need. Only when we've come to this point will we come to Jesus the way these two in this passage come to him. This is where they've arrived. This desperate man, this desperate woman, run to Jesus. And his response to both of them is essentially the same. To Jairus, in the moment of his despair... 
Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And to the woman who has come to him, he says, woman, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Believe, faith. These two are different words in English, but they are the same word, the same root word in Greek. Faith, to believe. This is the one thing we need to find hope and help in Christ. Now, there's probably not many words in theology. Many of you, maybe all of you, have been around the church for most of your life. Faith is a word you've heard a lot. This is a word that gets thrown around all the time. You need to believe in Jesus. Just have faith. We pray in faith. But the danger is the more frequently we use a word, the less often we stop to think of what it actually means. When we say, when Jesus says, only believe or have faith, what does he mean? What is he calling on Jairus and this woman to do? What's the action? What is the one thing that Jesus is calling on both this woman and Jairus to do? Well, when we're talking about having faith in a person, the Reformers defined faith as a combination of three things. They said faith is knowing truth about someone. It's knowing truth about someone. It's a conviction based on that truth, that this person is capable of meeting my need, and then it's entrusting ourselves to that person. We know truth about them, we believe that they're capable of meeting our need, and then we entrust ourselves to that person. I was thinking about this, uh, this past week, a friend of mine was telling me about a magic show that he'd attended. And he told me this was a great magic show, he said, but the final trick scared me to death. I said, oh, well, what was... What was the final trick? And he said, well, the final trick, the magician brought in a working guillotine. And he set this guillotine up, and he put two potatoes in it, and whoom, slumped the guillotine down, the potatoes fell right in half, clean cut in half. And after doing this two or three times in various positions with the potatoes to show that it's cutting power, he said, um, all right, I'd like a volunteer from the audience. And he, he put a bigger hole for a neck in the guillotine, and he invited someone from the audience to come stick their neck in the working guillotine that had just sliced the six potatoes. Now, what would it take you to stick your head in that guillotine? And I thought through these three levels. I thought, I might know the fact that this guy's probably going to be able to pull this trick off and not kill me. Um, because he's probably not still in business if he's been killing a person out of each of his audiences. So I might know that fact. That's the first step. I might even go a step further and say, I believe that he will do the trick this time, and it will work, and I'll be fine. But faith doesn't come until we take that third step of saying, yes, he's going to be able to do the trick. I believe he can, and so I'm going up there and sticking my neck in there. That's the third step. Those are the three parts of faith. And it's not until we get all three of those until we're willing to take that step of entrusting ourselves fully to that person that we have what Jesus means by faith. We know truth, we believe it, and then we entrust ourselves to that person. The trick worked, by the way. Uh, No one died that night. Um, This is faith. And when it comes to Christ... Theologian John Murray put it this way. He said, Faith means the abandonment of our confidence in our own or any human resources in a total act of committing ourselves to Christ 
for salvation. It is steady confidence in Christ, reliance on Christ, movement towards Christ, looking to Christ and only to Christ for the help that we need. You think about faith, and when we think about entrusting ourselves to someone, think about Jairus. I think Jairus expresses this so well. Here's Jairus. His daughter's at the point of death. He only has maybe a few minutes, maybe an hour, a precious short amount of time. How is Jairus going to use the last few minutes of his daughter's life? Because how Jairus uses the last few minutes of his daughter's life is going to show what he has faith in, what he believes in. Is Jairus going to run for another doctor? Because maybe a better, another doctor is the best chance for my daughter's life to be saved. Maybe he's going to try spells or herbs or tricks from old wives' tales because maybe he believes they have the best chance of healing his daughter. Maybe he believes there is no hope for his daughter and so he'll just spend the last few minutes he has with her holding her hand so that he could have a last remembrance of his time with her. But Jairus shows this entrusting himself to Jesus, this faith that says, I'm committing myself to Jesus as my only answer when he takes those last few minutes of his daughter's life and says, I'm using these to run to Jesus because he's the only one who can help, and I believe he can. It's that point that we see here in the story, Jairus' faith. I love, um, I love also Hebrews, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us another definition of faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. I love how Hebrews 11 here defines faith as, as a willingness to believe something you haven't seen yet. A conviction that something is true or is going to happen, even though you haven't seen it yet, because you know the person you trust in. You know, there's many of us who are willing to trust in something we have seen. Maybe we've seen it happen once or twice. Maybe if I go to that magic show a hundred times and I see the guillotine work a hundred times, I'll finally have faith in that person because I've seen it a hundred times. But what Hebrews is emphasizing is we're having faith in something we haven't seen because of who Christ is. Faith is committing ourselves to something we haven't seen play out yet because of our trust in the person who's promising it. And so when Jairus comes to his point of hearing that his daughter is dead, he hasn't seen little girls rise from the dead before. He hasn't seen, you know, oh yeah, of course, you know, they raise girls from the dead all the time. I'll I'll have faith in Jesus. It's something he hasn't seen. He can't imagine it. But Jesus says to him, Jairus, do not fear, just believe. And so faith says, because you have said it, and I trust you, Jesus, I will believe it, even though I have no idea how this could play out. This is, this is faith. I think, um, I think this reminds us that one of the most important and unique things about faith is that there's nothing special about our faith that accomplishes salvation. It's not my faith and the strength of my faith that gets me salvation. It's the person I have faith in. B.B. Warfield put it this way. He says, uh, The power of saving faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior we have faith in. It's not faith that saves. It's not, strictly speaking, even our faith in Christ that saves, but Christ himself who saves through faith. What is this emphasizing? The power and the hope is all in Christ. 
And faith is just the means. It's, a, it's describing the process when we say, I have nothing, everything is of Christ, and so I'm throwing myself on the power of the Almighty Savior. That's the action of, of, of faith. Faith puts our gaze on Christ. It's our reliance and our trust only in Christ. It throws all our eggs into one basket and says, Christ, you're everything, and so I'm throwing my whole hope on you and you alone. It throws us right on this omnipotent saving power of the almighty God of the universe. And so we could say the question is not how strong is our faith. The question is how strong is the one in whom we have put our faith. And of course the answer that this passage gives us is strong enough to heal every hurt and raise even the dead. Jesus is worthy of our faith. I think this is why J.C. Ryle, the the 19th century bishop summed up the importance of faith this way. He said, No grace is so important to the Christian's own soul as faith. Faith brings an empty hand. It receives everything and can give nothing in return. By faith we begin. By faith we live. By faith we stand. By faith we overcome. By faith we have peace. By faith we enter rest. May we never rest till we can give a satisfactory answer to this question. Do I really believe? Because faith is everything. No, um, pastor and professor Kent Hughes, who's at Westminster Seminary, he summed up this story in Mark chapter 5. He summed it up so well when he said, this poor woman represents humanity. She represents all of us. We are ill. We have spent our resources trying remedies that do not work. Christ comes to us from the cross, and we need only touch him by faith. Do not fear that he will not respond. Do not fear that you are being too selfish. Fear only one thing, that you will let him pass by without reaching out in faith to grasp him. There's so much in our life that challenges us I, I think of so many times in life where I start to have this desperation of, I don't see any solution. And so I start to despair. But in that moment, this passage and the response of faith challenges my heart and says, faith points me to the almighty power of a Savior. Well, I put my faith in Him and Him alone. Well, I just want to end briefly by noticing what happens when this man, Jairus, and this woman put their faith in Christ. What, notice the blessing that comes from putting our faith in Christ. Faith heals this woman's hemorrhage. But more than that, faith brings peace and true healing. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say, go and be healed. He says, go in peace and be healed. And you can imagine all the emotion and worry and fear and, and, and struggle and striving that this woman has experienced for 12 years. And when she meets her Savior, he says, go in peace. And you can only imagine what that peace involved for her after these 12 young years. Go in peace as your fears and your depression and your desperate need have been met. Go in peace and be healed. But the passage goes far beyond that because faith doesn't just heal. You know, it's interesting, Jairus came to Jesus for a healing, but he ended up getting a resurrection. 
Jairus came to Jesus to have sickness healed, and he ended up seeing his daughter rise from the dead. That's so much more than Jairus bargained for. It's so much more than Jairus was asking for. And I can only imagine, and as I look at my own heart and my own life and think, how many times do I come to Jesus and ask for something? And the something I'm asking for is something very much of this, this earth. And Jesus blows my mind and blows away my request by giving me not just that, but resurrection hope, or life forever. See, Jairus, when Jairus went up into that bedroom with Jesus and three disciples, Jairus got a sneak peek. He got a trailer, the first trailer, if you will, of what's coming for all those who put their faith in Christ. He witnessed one little girl rise again from the dead. But in witnessing that picture of a dead girl rising to life, he was seeing a little picture, a tiny foretaste of what Jesus had come to do. And that's banish the effects of sin, the curse, and death, and bring resurrection life forever to all those who put their faith in Christ. And so for any one of us who say, yes, Jesus, I am throwing my faith on you. You are the one who will meet my need. He's given us the picture. He's given us the sneak peek. Our hope is resurrection. Resurrection life. And so every one of our hearts should read this story. And I think any one of us who is a parent has a certain thrill when, when I picture this little girl who was dead coming alive again. But every one of our hearts should be thrilled because it's not just that little girl, that's us. And Jesus is calling to us and saying, you were dead, but now I'm, I'm, I'm raising you to life. You too will receive resurrection. It's this thrill of resurrection hope that marks this passage with such blessing and joy and excitement and hope for every one of us who knew faith in Christ. I'd just add uh, very briefly that I think it's this thrill of resurrection hope that leads Jesus to give this very odd command in the last verse. Perhaps some of you are wondering, why in the world would Jesus strictly charge that they should tell no one what happened? Come on, Jesus, resurrection hope, that's what we're waiting for. What do you mean we shouldn't tell everybody? We want to tell everyone what's happening. Why give this command? Well, remember the crowds that were thronging around Jesus. Most of them weren't there to reach out their hand and touch his garment in hope of healing. Most of them were there to watch some cool miracle. There were crowds flying around looking to see something cool. And Jesus isn't there just to satisfy the curiosity of, of people who wanted to see a miracle. He's there to give resurrection hope to those who have put their faith in him out of their desperate need. I think what we're here to, to see is that Jesus isn't just here to show everyone that he can raise a dead person. He's looking for hearts who will believe in him so that they might have resurrection hope. It's those who know their need and come to him. And so for you and I, the call is not whether we've heard all about Jesus or whether we know Jesus can raise the dead. The call to us tonight is this. Have you and I put our faith in the power of Christ? Are we willing to use the minutes that we have left in our life to run to him for hope? Are we all in for him and for him alone as the only one who can give true hope, who will meet all our need, who will rescue us from sin, from suffering, from death, and give resurrection hope forever. That's what the Savior is offering. And so Jesus' call to every one of us tonight is, do not fear. 
only believe. What a great call. Let's pray. God, we are, we are thrilled. Our hearts, our hearts can, can hardly even imagine what this little picture of a girl raised from the dead will turn into, will, will point towards on the last day when you say to all of us, my sons and daughters, I say to you, arise. And those of us who ought to have been dead from sin will respond to your call because of your power and your salvation and will be raised to resurrection hope, to resurrection life with you forever. I pray that this, that this hope, that this story, this picture will call our hearts to you, will entrench and firm our faith in you, the one true God, the one true hope that we have in our need. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.